When it comes to Italians, the reputation for quality, ingenuity, and innovation is just par for the course, and today's guest is no different. Home to the world's first compostable stretch denim, Candiani, a fourth-generation family business, is a mainstay in the fashion space, working with the likes of Levi's, Stella McCartney, Hugo Boss, among many other labels. Its leader, Alberto, great-grandson to Candiani's original founder, developed a deep interest for product development and fabric engineering. His obsession with progress, innovation, and sustainability in textiles has led his namesake business to develop the reputation as the greenest textile company in the blue world. Now, with the development of Coriva, the world's first biodegradable denim, the company is taking strides to emphasize sustainability in denim production to reduce the post-life impact of the garments created from textiles sourced in their mill. I have to say, I learned a lot on this episode, much of what I thought I had a good understanding of. But Alberto truly is a nerd when it comes to the origins and evolution of what we know to be in the mass market as jeans. This episode truly inspired me to be more creative, more passionate, and to have more fun doing what we love. And I hope that you find that it did the same for you. On this episode, Alberto joined me from Florence to talk about the evolution of Candiani, the importance of innovation in businesses, and how a casual trip to his regular Masseleria in Milano turned into the creation of Coriva, which will revolutionize the denim world. What's up, guys? Just before I jump into this episode, I wanted to take a quick second to thank my sponsors over at The Bean Bundle, Canada's newest coffee subscription. The Bean Bundle makes it so easy for people like me who drink tons of coffee every single day but love to try beans from different roasters. The process is pretty simple. You just visit beanbundle.com, you take a quick quiz, and they suggest the perfect beans for your taste buds and ship them right to your door on a monthly basis. The best part is if you live in Canada, they ship to you absolutely free. And if you sign up using code BUNDLE25, you'll save 25% off your first month of a three-month subscription or longer. Now, go pour yourself a cup of coffee and enjoy this week's episode. Alberto Candiani from the famous Candiani factory in Italy. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Andrew. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to chat with you. You know, we've, we've had a couple calls and a couple chats uh, leading up to this and, um, you know, just obviously when when you meet someone who is involved in a business like Candiani, who's been around for 78 years now, um, you know, it's exciting because I think there's a lot to, to be learned in terms of running a business for that long, uh, how it's changing, which we're going to get into. I think, you know, there's there's a lot of innovation happening under the hood at your business. But, you know, where I kind of want to start with this conversation is, you know, there's there's four generations of, of Candiani's. You know, your great grandfather started this business and uh, and it's evolved. But, you know, I guess the, the first question I, I have for you with regards to that is like, do you feel uh, a crazy amount of pressure to keep the, the ship moving forward and afloat? Or, um, you know, what's your... How do you feel on a day-to-day, you know, being the fourth generation uh, now running this business? Well, um, there is pressure for sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can feel it. You can Mm -hmm. sense it, especially in times like this, you know, and I'm not just referring to the pandemic. I'm I'm talking about um, uh, textile madness, and and that started way before the pandemic. Put pressure on you for sure i don't feel the weight of the four uh, generations i do not i i think i'm lucky uh to carry these on and uh um I've, i feel responsible i would say responsibility is 
probably a better word that describes better my feelings instead of pressure. Uh, you know, we have 600 workers and, um, and we operate somewhere which is not uh, so ideal um, in terms of uh, economics. Uh, you know, we produce everything in, in Italy, which is kind of expensive compared to what, where most of textiles have developed in underdeveloped or uh, develop, developing countries with um, much more convenient, I would say, uh, economical factors. Uh, so we are not counting on that. Uh, the, the pressure is there because now I don't want to say we're the best, but we are considered in the denim industry, we are considered one of the best and you have to keep up and you have to prove yourself and you have to prove the market. You are still the best. And when you're up there, there's a lot you have to prove. Now, I, I don't wake up every morning with the idea I need to prove something neither to myself or the world. What I, I like to wake up with the idea that eventually I'm going to change a little piece of the world every day and I'm not going to work. You know, it's, it, it is very different. I, I, I feel like uh, my company is my family and kind of way vice versa. I mean, I was literally born inside the factory and my parents still live inside the factory. My grandparents used to live inside the factory. If you enter the company from the main gate on your right side, you have my grandma house and left side, my auntie, and then my parents. I mean, that really doesn't, doesn't create pressure when you, when you, enter a familiar environment, something familiar makes you feel comfortable on paper, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's the way I feel about the company, um, 100%. So responsibility, when you talk family, you talk responsibility more than pressure. I believe in my specific case that also reflects to the business. Yeah, that's a great question. One thing you said there that really stands out to me is, you know, when when you're passionate about something, it doesn't feel like work, right? It just, you know, it, it just comes naturally. It's just something you wake up and you do. And um, especially the fact that you, you were born in that factory, it's probably very second nature to you to, to make certain decisions, make the right decisions and, and just kind of have uh, just a natural instinct when it comes to, you know, being involved in that business. And I think that just comes with, you know, being surrounded by it for so long. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think, it probably removes a lot of that pressure just being being so aware of, of how things have been running for for quite some time you know one one thing you we talked about on our first call was and i found it really interesting was the evolution of of candiani and because it didn't start as as a denim mill correct it started as as another business true well work with fabrics yeah with, with fabric. So, so how did, how did we land on denim, denim? Like, what was that evolution like? And, and then like, why denim, I guess. Uh, the, the evolution is, is natural. I have to say, because there is strong connection between workwear fabrics and denim. I mean, denim can still be somehow considered a workwear fabric, if you will. Um, but yeah, my great grandfather, Luigi in 1938, when he started a very small weaving operation. So just, a bunch of looms weaving workwear fabrics, right? Then my grandfather was the one with a wider industrial vision. And he was the one saying, uh, we should go vertical. And that means weaving is no longer 
enough. We need to, to source the raw materials, so the fibers, the cotton, and we need to spin, we need to dye, we need to weave, and we need to finish the fabric. So we, we, we make a complete, you know, the vertical operation. And, um, and I would say that my grandfather's initial attempt to make denim was a fake denim. So basically, he was making the workwear fabric, dyeing the yarns that way not with indigo but just with uh, with a uh, with a reactive blue and then it was it was just gonna put a white yarn as a fill instead of a blue yarn because the workwear fabrics were blue blue you know mm -hmm. um and denim is made of a indigo warp and a natural cotton weft so so yeah my, my grandfather was trying to do it <laughs> i guess I guess pretty ugly, uh, but then he fell in love with the dyeing, uh, the dyeing of indigo, which again, it is a totally different thing compared to other colors. He fell in love with it. A good friend of his was, a, was an engineer who came up with a different technique to dye indigo. Uh, now I just don't wanna get too technical, but the Americans and the Japanese were using a different technology called rope dyeing. And this guy invented this leisure dyeing that, that was, it's basically like a like a like a rug of yarns going in and out those baths of indigo and and my grandfather fell in love with it so they did develop the, the machines together and finally uh, my grandfather together with my father they realized that denim was the cool thing and and workwear fabrics were you know we were not competitive enough uh, they were too flat there's not much of creativity that that you can actually put into workwear fabric creations and it, it is more creative to make denim and i always say italians are a little bit uh, artists and a little bit engineers i believe that really uh, gives you like the right portrait of my grandfather especially and and so he, he decided to convert part of the mill into uh, denim production and then my father was the one that in the early 80s said forget about workwear there's no way we because the, the workwear fabrics got so cheap because of polyesters and other fibers and and that industry got global before the world got global actually so it was it, again it was about competitivity and then i believe it was natural um for my dad and even my grandfather to, to love indigo better than all the other blues and uh and yeah, and uh, and then we, we we always knew. Actually, this is interesting. Not many people know that denim is an Italian fabric. Everyone, I, do, I I don't know that. I didn't know that. It really is. It really is. And everybody's like, oh, it's American. It's Japanese. Nope. I promise. It uh, the original uh, denim or tela Genova jeans. Jeans comes from the city of Genova in uh, in Liguria in Italy. I've been there. Yeah. Uh, the, the blue de Gen in French, you say the, the, the blue of Genoa. And um, that wasn't really denim. I mean, the fibers were a blend of cotton and linen or even hemp. And it, it didn't even look like the denim we know today. But we're talking 15th century. And, uh, and they used to dye uh, cotton yarns or linen yarns with indigo and weave them in a way which we could consider the grandfather of denim and also um the actual inventor of the weaving technique uh we we still weave the denim with is uh was leonardo da vinci and this is uh something that really nobody knows and and somehow i feel like i'm in charge to rediscover 
you know, and and promote a little bit the Italian roots of denim because it is it is a strong marketing uh, topic. So if if you if you want, I mean, it really is a cool story, and no one has has really taken advantage. I mean, I shouldn't say take advantage. I mean, just just say it, you know. I tell the but yeah, story. I mean, yeah, it's um, denim for us. It's it's in our blood. It, it really it really is. It's um, it's indigo. It's it's a different type of blue, you know. Indigo is that kind of blue that ages with you, on you. It fades, mm -hmm. and the most it ages. The beauty comes out of it, you know. It's it, it is something alive. It is something which, once again, as I said earlier, in a way allowed us to put some more creativity into what we were doing. Um, something which was not really happening with workwear fabrics. Yeah, it's interesting too when I think about you know your grandfather in the in the thirties and forties you know, in those times, no one wore, like jeans were not big, right? Like you think about your grandfather, I think about my grandfather, my great grandfather, you know, they, they wore like trousers and, and fedoras and like, you know, they had that really classic look every day. It wasn't just Sunday going to church. Like that's how they dressed, you know, very different from the way we dress now. And, and, you know, now denim is a very, obviously a mainstream thing that is part of our wardrobe on a day to day. I, I actually find it really interesting that back then in the 40s 50s whatever you know you guys kind of went that direction because it's not like it's not like you could look out into the world and say okay everybody's going to be wearing denim in 30 40 years this is what we need to do it was just something that happened naturally and and you know the the, the world kind of almost followed in a sense in, in terms of the trend so i find that that's something really interesting in fact, to be honest, that switch really happened between the 60s and the 70s. And again, there, there was a lot. I mean, denim was still considered workwear at that time. Right. What really made the difference was my dad coming up with stretch denim in the 80s. Mm -hmm. So my dad, he didn't invent stretch denim, but he was the first one to get it right, to get it nice, to get it uh, cool, uh, to make it feminine. You know, denim wasn't really a woman type of thing you know it, it was heavy it was uncomfortable it wasn't sexy uh, and when my dad came up with uh with our first stretch then that was the biggest hit everybody else all our competitors thought that stretch denim was going to be a trend maybe you know one year two years and then it's going to disappear it wasn't actually really if anything is more popular now people want that like that comfort now more than ever right True, and uh, and seventy five percent of the market, uh, globally speaking, is stretch. Right now, yeah. Wow. So, so he was a pioneer, and I believe uh, I really like to give him credit. Like he made it more of a fashion thing, more of a feminine thing, like a, a sexy thing, if you will. Because for real, like ladies were looking weird with those jeans in the seventies and the eighties. So we they deserved. The, the woman woman shapes women shapes deserve a better fabric you know and uh, deserve the better fabric and i believe um that was that was probably what made the, the difference you know my my, my dad was um managed to create uh, to diversify our product uh, our style against everyone else and uh and and we became very very popular because of our, our stretch denim especially in america let me ask you this, just based on, you know, I find that fascinating that you're saying that it all ties into each other, like jeans, Genoa, you know, comes from Italy. 
And listen, up until this moment, I had no friggin' clue about that. Like I, I would, you know, it's just, it's just not something that's common knowledge. Where do you, where do you think the, the disconnect happened? You know, where did, where did that, that connection to, you know, to Italy and, and denim uh, kind of get lost and, and become more of a Japanese, more of an American, uh, you know, branded type of product? Sure. Uh, there are two moments. Uh, the first one is Levi's patenting the five pocket jeans. Mm -hmm. So people are still confused about what's jeans, what's denim, you know, mm -hmm. and it, it is confusing because in a way denim, well, let's say today denim refers to the fabric and jeans refer to a five pocket uh, garment. But back in the days, denim was a fabric and jeans was a fabric. You know, it, it wasn't really related to the five pocket. Got it. But when Levi's came up with the patented five pocket jeans with the rivets and blah, 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 they, they made it sound like an American story. And as a matter of fact, that specific item is, but the fabric was created way before that. Um, and that would be number one second. Uh, after World War II, um, the Japanese uh, fell in love with denim. Uh, and again, to be honest and frank with you, the Japanese were also dyeing cotton yards with indigo, but they were not really weaving denim type of fabrics uh, in the 16th century or <laughs> not really till the 19th century. Or even I, I was I was saying uh, after World War II, the Japanese fell in love with the jeans worn by the GIs. And that's how they decided to, well, we can't get those from America, so we're going to make our own. Mm -hmm. And they decided to go old school. Uh, they decided to rediscover the American way of spinning, of dyeing, and blah, blah, blah. And as always, the Japanese, when they don't come up with their own and they copy something, they just do it even better than the original. And I believe that's how they created the Japanese school. But that is a way more recent story than what people think. Yeah, that's, that's really, really interesting. It's really, really interesting. And, uh, you know, one thing I know about Japanese cu culture, have you ever been to Tokyo before? Uh, two, three times a year. Oh, it's, it's probably one of my favorite cities. Um, it, it probably is my favorite city. But one thing you notice in Tokyo is, you know, when you go into the vintage stores and you go into a lot, first of all, a lot of the, a lot of the fashion there is male dominated, um, which is kind of the opposite of everywhere else in the world. The, the, the menswear scene is just so big. But when you go into the into the vintage stores, you really notice that American influence that you're talking about that kind of happened because of the because of the war, right? You see, you see Levi's, you can find vintage Levi's in Japan everywhere. You can find vintage American, you know, memorable like like clothing that that just was was stuff that they wore in America in the 80s and the 90s because they were so fascinated with that American culture. And uh, you could really see it, it kind of make its way to Japan. So it really makes sense to me that, you know, Levi's comes about and then they become almost like obsessive about replicating it in Japan. So they really did. In fact, if you remember, I mean, they're still around the brand Evizu. Yep. Yeah. Evizu. Yeah. Uh, which is one of the original Japanese denim brands. Well, Evizu is just the way a Japanese would uh, pronounce Levi's. So, I mean, yeah, and, and I don't, I don't want to say Japanese are copycat because I really and I truly respect the tradition of indigo dye 
and also the way the Japanese make their own denim. Mm -hmm. In fact, as Candiani, we did copy a little bit from the Japanese because the Japanese decided, as I mentioned earlier, they decided to go back and rediscover the original way of spinning. It's called ring spinning. Mm -hmm. While the Americans forgot about it because they adopted a different technique, which, which was more for this efficient and productive. Uh, but the ring spinning is what gives you the opportunity to create interesting yarns. While the open-end technique, which was adopted by the Americans already uh, after World War II, makes it very flat. There's no margin of creativity in there. While the Japanese decided to go back to the original way because it makes it more authentic, more rustic. It makes, really, it, you can create more interesting fabrics with that technique. And same for the dyeing. I mean, the Japanese really went into like each single detail to make something which was industrial, industrially produced, but really looked like artisanal. Mm -hmm. And and that is um, that is something the Japanese and the Italians have in common, if you want. Engineering and art. Right? Yeah, true. That, that approach. Yeah. So that listen, that 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 is really interesting stuff. I I honestly did not expect that to to come out in this episode, but like I think it's really it's fascinating. Like I'm, I'm blown away because there's so many, there's so much information there that I don't think many people know. So if you think how popular is denim and like mm -hmm. no one really knows about it, you know, the history is something which it is an opportunity for me, for Candiani, for many others actually to, to, to tell a beautiful story of what became like that, you know, everyday uniform in, in the Western world or for the modern society, denim really is the most popular fabric out there. Yeah, absolutely. Let's let's talk about your um, your growth at, at Candiani. So, I mean, you said you were basically born in there, obviously. Uh, but, you know, when when do you th actually think you you know you start getting really involved in the business? Like, when does that moment happen? And you know, how how does your vision start changing the the future of of what Candiani is gonna gonna become? Well, yeah, I was I was actually born in Switzerland, to be honest with you. Okay. But still <laughs> i'm italian and when i say my family houses like they literally are inside the same compound of the mill like they are they truly are and i was raised in there i i was raised a lot by my grandparents and my parents were very busy uh, of course but um i have beautiful beautiful memories the, the, the mill in a way was my my playground like literally i would i would play with you know with the cotton bales and the, and 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 um, sometimes even the machines and the equipments and and the um, and the fabrics. And as you said earlier, I I found myself part of that ecosystem. <laughs> and it's a good way to put it. It's an ecosystem, right? It becomes it really an, your ecosystem. It, it really is. And uh, I, of course, I had my rebellion. You know, I've I've, I've done music. I tried to escape in a way, but. The connection was too strong. My um, initiation actually happened after my graduation. So I was 24 years old and um, I used to go to the mill. Every, I mean, I used to live in the mill. So I was there already. Uh, still, uh, the, the same day I graduated, my father, I, I was ready to catch a flight to Ibiza. I was ready to go for one week, I was. 
And my dad made me do something very Italian, like go to this, uh, where, where the pastries shops, like whatever, get the pastries, take them to the office. We celebrate your graduation with the people. And basically I never left, not even to Ibiza <laughs> that day. I, I got stuck in there. Um, good thing uh, was that um, no marketing was ever done uh, at Candiani. So my dad said, look, you need to learn a little bit of everything because, you know, family owned business and you own it. So you need to know a bit of everything from, you know, numbers to technical things and, you know, fabric engineering, the sales, everything. Mm -hmm. And, but no marketing, like the, the marketing guy position was pretty much open. So I, I found myself making marketing with no budget because my dad said, I'm not going to spend one dime, like zero market. We've never done it. I think you should do it, but there's no budget. I mean, so just come up with ideas. Good luck. Something. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> but that made me creative in, in one way because, uh, you know, we make, we're in the textile business and it's business to business. It gets very boring, very boring. Uh, but sometimes, especially, you know, Candiani, we are purists of innovation. We really are. And if you don't promote your innovation, and if you don't talk about it, if you don't make it relevant, uh, I believe people are not really going to appreciate it. I realized that most of the innovation we were doing, which was very much process and product related, was not understood. And the reason was outsourcing became bigger and bigger 20 years ago. So, you know, the brands were just, they were no longer producing. I mean, the, the big guys, the Levi's, the VF, I mean, Lee Wrangler, the Gap, they, they don't own their own companies. They don't make their own fabrics. They don't cut and sew their own garments. They are outsourcing from, from the Far East in, in, in general, mm -hmm. uh, or Asia or South America, whatever. But they, they, they no longer see what they are manufacturing. And the outsourcing process somehow has caused what I call deprofessionalization. Like people were not so professional about things. And in a way, they were not able to understand innovation no more. And I always say, if you're not able or capable to understand something, you cannot appreciate it. So most of our efforts were going lost for the simple reason that the innovation we were bringing was not relevant enough to the eyes of the guys working at Lee, at Wrangler, at Levi's, at Gap. Like they were, they, they, they couldn't really tell what that was about and what was the big, you know, the, the, the big thing um, uh, behind it. So I tried to apply uh, my own creativity in order to market our innovation differently and uh, to make it more comprehensible, uh, if you will, to make it a little less technical, uh, less boring, a little more disruptive, uh, adopting a different type of language, which was no longer the textiles language, but maybe more of a, you know, yeah, a fashion or, or a sportswear uh, type of language. And, um, and that became, quite successful. Uh, we started to make our own collections. So we were no longer showcasing our fabrics, like small swatches, but we were creating a collection for real. Like we were making jeans with our fabrics as samples and wash them and treat them and, and document 
uh, about the, the process as well. And that became very successful, I have to say, that the old industry went that way after we started. No one is, like in the denim industry, there's no meal that would come to you with this watch or fabric. They all come with jeans, with washed pair of jeans, with treated garments. And 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 that made an impact. And then I realized that uh, obviously what we were doing, um, the way we were doing things at Candiani was very much different from anybody else. I mean, um, for the simple reason, Candiani is located in the nature reserve. So we, we are located outside of Milan, 37 kilometers outside of Milano, in the nature reserve, Parco del Ticino. It, 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 Ticino, it's a river that starts in Switzerland in the Alps and comes down, creates Lago Maggiore, creates beautiful, like beautiful landscapes. And, and that's where we are. And, and, the, and the natural reserve was um, officially um, just established uh, way, way after the mill was, was started. So in the 70s, so we found ourselves in a nature reserve and the rules and the legislation and the regulations are crazy, like to run major, like big textile operations within an Italian nature reserve, it's just a nightmare. Mm-hmm. And, and what my dad and my grandfather as well, they saw as a competitive disadvantage. I was like, wait, no one's doing this the way we're doing it. And uh, it is a competitive advantage, but we need to tell about it. So mm-hmm. I, I, I started to talk about what we do, where we do it, how we do it. And, and that was something totally uh, unprecedented at, at Candiani. So how did you start doing that? Because like, I'm assuming this is before social media. This is before, you know, this is before we had a lot of free channels to, to, to leverage and, and get our, our, our voices out. Right. Um, like what, how are you getting that out? Just at trade shows or, or like, yeah mostly trade shows and then one-to-one presentations with customers. As I said, it was pure B2B, business-to-business action, which means, all right, I'm going to be super boring right now. So I'm going to talk to you about this light variation of the yarn, which I made, and, you know, and this is stretching 23% with a recovery of 2.7, and the old one was 2.8 and whatever. I mean, those things were just like, I mean, relevant, important. Trust me, I'm, 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 I love all the technical aspect and and it, again, uh, the beauty uh, of a fabric is is you know within the, the the engineering process and and the creation. But the story behind the mill, the story behind that fabric is more appealing and it's more interesting. So I was spending time with customers and tell them about about us, which, which makes it very easy because you simply have to tell the truth. And in the, in, at the meantime, in, in, in the meantime, uh, Candiani happened to be the last vertical mill based in Europe. All the others went bankrupt. I'm talking about early 2000 and, you know, <laughs> that wasn't really good sign, but uh, we used to have many European competitors and they all ran out of business, all of them. So we were the last guys in there and, you know, there's a reason why. Uh, and I don't want to say, you know, Kandiani became like the, the denim Jurassic Park, but uh, it was more of a, it was, we wanted to create the experience and the best way to achieve that result uh, was to invite people over. 
So when customers would visit Candiani, they would immediately understand the difference between Candiani and the others because they would find themselves uh, in a nature reserve, in a beautiful factory, which is incredibly clean. And that is a whole different story that's about, you know, the Candianis are a little OCD or, I mean, we're, we're, <laughs> we're very precise, very, very clean, very, in Italy we say, you can eat on the floor at Candiani, but for real, I mean, we, we are that type of maniacs. And, um, and, and customers, uh, our customers were used to very ugly facilities when, you know, textiles went literally super decadent uh, and, and they were used to mills and, and factories where, you know, it was nasty and dirty everywhere. And and Candiani was such a different environment, and uh, it was more of an experience. It sounds like, right? It was. It was, and we kept that going. We kept it going. Actually, we even improved the experience itself. We created the open meal day, which we should we, we we would simply open the meal to people and and let them see what we do, the way we do it. Uh, when you see it, that that's the. the that's the difference. I mean, if, if you see something, then you understand. If you understand, you appreciate. If you appreciate, you can love that thing. Mm -hmm. But those steps, if you don't see it, it's super complicated. The reason why next time you're in Italy, because I know you are a frequent flyer and you come to Italy quite often, you should come. We're, we're conveniently located 10 kilometers away from Malpensa International Airport of Milan. And, and you should see it because you need to see what we do the way we do it in order to understand, appreciate, and love a pair of jeans in the end. Well, the, 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 the funny thing is that you said that is that like this whole time I've been thinking like, I, I wish I had known a year ago, I wish we had met a year ago because I was driving around in the north. But obviously, that won't be my last time going there. But the whole time I'm thinking, I really want to go see this place. And it reminds me of um, when I was doing that drive a year or two ago, um, I stopped in Solomeo to see the, you know, the, the Brunello Cuccinelli's compound. And what the picture you're painting for me is very similar to that because very right very it's, similar because they they basically that whole town is a compound as a Cuccinelli compound right they have the factory they have the retail store it's all built around that brand and when you go there even though this you know a lot of that stuff's really expensive and you're like I, I probably can't afford a, a you know a four thousand dollar you know whatever but it, it really creates that experience and a connection because because you see the amount of work and you see the heritage that goes into it and that's what i'm picturing when you're when you're talking about this um so yes i'm, I'm very excited to come and visit and uh you know even got me thinking for my for my own brand like you know maybe maybe we can collaborate and, and make a bag out of some candy any denim who knows but sure. um th that's that's a conversation for another right. day and a conversation we'll have offline but um i think what i'm starting to see here is that you know the the natural, the organic placement of Candiani on a reserve, um, the creating of the experiences, it's almost like the sustainability side of things almost starts to come in naturally, where you want to tell that story about, you know, how you guys are, you know, what your process is and why it's important and how it's, you know, not outsourced. When does that shift start happening? Because I know you're very big on in innovation and we're going to get into, you know, your, your Kariva denim and, and talk a little bit about that. But would you say that's kind of the turning point? It was start when you start, you know, having these experiences, telling these stories, um, you know, even doing some marketing that you started to realize, oh, we really got to tell this, you know, we, we got to become more sustainable and tell this story. 
Yeah, it, it was. I would say that was probably my biggest impact on the company. And again, I didn't really invent anything. I mean, everything was there already. I had to tell about it. But my dad was more like, don't say what we do or the way we do it, they're going to copy us and blah, blah. As a matter of fact, they are copying us and they're copying even our marketing and everything. But that's not really the point. I'm like, look, uh, no one can replicate the Candiani model. Mm -hmm. So that's giving us extra strength. And it is a unique opportunity. There's no other denim mill in Italy, in Europe, and there's no other denim mill in the world doing what we do, the way we do it. So we need to tell about our history about, look, we have to tell about our history and our past. We have to tell about our innovation and our future. And we are too much stuck in the present, making beautiful fabrics and just, you know, going the old school way, the, the business to business way, trying to sell those fabrics, but we cannot ignore the past and future. Our heritage and our uh, innovative um, spirit, you know, this is, we need to talk about it. It's, it's romantic, if you will, but it is who we are. So when, when let's say, all the sustainable stuff was there for real. I mean, if you talk to my dad, he would say, look, you're talking, you're pretty much talking about efficiency here because it's true. I mean, if you talk process or like the industrial uh, thing, like efficiency is the principle you can literally build sustainable innovation on. Like literally, you don't want to waste anything. You just want to be super efficient. You just want to have um, a clean product a clean process that doesn't contaminate the environment, especially if you are located in the nature reserve. Because if you do not do that, you go to jail. There's law that you, have, you almost have to be. You know, you have to be. That's that, that's the beauty of it. We were forced to be sustainable. Yeah, exactly. By the environment, by the surrounding environment, and that was gorgeous. Uh, and <laughs> it was just. It is the way it is. Look, we need to perform under those regulations and restrictions. And yeah, it's net egg, but I guarantee there's nobody else doing the same thing. We just need to tell about it. It's true. We're more expensive than everybody else. I mean, labor in Italy, I mean, it's 35% of our costs. I mean, it is, yeah, maybe in Japan, it is about the same. But if you go to Turkey, which happens to be like, Turkish meals are our strongest competitors. Labor is about 12%. If you go to North Africa, we're looking at one or 2%. Uh, Pakistan, India, one, 2%. China, three, 4% right now. But again, we need, it's not that we need to justify why we're more expensive because we make beautiful fabrics with beautiful contents, with beautiful uh, aesthetics and performance. Uh, but we, we need, we need to tell and we need to uh, to display, basically to display why we're more expensive. It's not that we have to justify it. It's just, look, this is what we do, the way we do it, how we do it, and where we do it. And that's why we're a little more expensive than the others. But again, most of our, like being more expensive is mostly explained by the innovation we bring. Um, because as I said earlier, we are purists of innovation. Uh, we are um, driven by by innovation, and like I mean, innovation can only be sustainable. There's no way you can innovate something and make it more polluting. 
I mean, that's stupid. Uh, I mean, if you look at cars, they're, they're trying to come up with models, they pollute less, they perform better, they can be competitive. They're not trying to come up with something that pollutes more and consumes more. I mean, it is obvious. So innovation can only be defined. I mean, true innovation can only be defined as sustainable innovation. But again, that is um, totally led by the vision. And, and, and even though my dad, hates the world sustainability even myself i'm like i'm overwhelmed it's, everything is sustainable now it's just whatever it, it's it's totally uh, losing its sense but to make a better product doesn't simply mean make it nicer it, it makes it i mean it, it has to be nicer and has to be cleaner has yeah. to be more respectful has to be more responsible and um without compromising again without compromising the performance or the aesthetics and i believe that's what we're really good at Kanyani. yeah absolutely so let's talk about coriva coriva is the the world's first biodegradable denim and you came up with this concept in italy in milan uh buying a you know shopping for salami and prosciutto yeah. and uh <laughs> so what about that experience what about salami and prosciutto triggered you to be like oh we need to okay, create well, the sustainable or, or biodegradable denim. So well, to be more precise, Coriva is world's first biodegradable and compostable stretch denim. Okay, my apologies. <laughs> no, absolutely, because most I would say that most of 100% cotton denim without a stretch would be biodegradable. Right, of course. Most yeah. of it, most of it. Because what, what really interferes with uh, biodegradability is the synthetic elastic the elastomer, right? Uh, so yes, I was walking into my usual delicatessen place owned by my friend Enea, it was a beautiful shop, beautiful, like, like literally, um, it, whenever you come, I take you there because it's, I mean, it is the Italian experience for sure. So I, I was, I was grabbing this salami and the salami was wrapped, wrapped into like, um, like, net, like the mesh. Yeah. Yeah. The net. Yeah. Yeah, it was a net, like, yeah. and the touch of the net was weird. And then it's and for a second, it bounced back. Mm -hmm. So I realized that that net wasn't like a rope. It was something different. It was elastic. So I, I, I asked the Nea, do you know what this is about? I mean, it, you know, it's rubbing a salami in touch, like with food, it is what type of material is that and he had no clue zero zero so i asked him to investigate I'm like, you need to tell me what this is about because somehow i already had the vision of natural rubber could replace synthetic petrol-based elastomers so something which is bio-based and possibly biodegradable because back in the days we didn't know that the natural rubber we were going to use was going to be biodegradable and compostable Anyways, so it started with that salami. We tracked down the distributor. Uh, we, from the distributor, we go to the original supply in Southeast Asia. The guy didn't really wanna listen to me at all. And so I took a plane. I told you we're located next to the airport. So I went to the airport, jumped on a plane, flew over there, rang the bell. Literally, I went to their offices, rang the bell, then for some incredible coincidence, the CEO of that company happens to be Italian. And oh, he wow. was, 
he was the brother of the distributor, but the guy didn't tell us that. Oh man, I mean, I mean, whatever. But <laughs> but they're literally they're uh, uh, they're located. Like, I mean, the guy is Italian, um, but um, he lives abroad abroad forever. Um, but his hometown would be twenty five kilometers from my hometown. So we are we're, we were having this conversation. And I, I literally forced him to restore uh, very old equipment uh, in order to make the type of elastic yarn that I needed. He's been super kind. He's been very proactive. Is uh, uh, engineers the same guys that were you know flaking and trying to tell me no, that's not possible. They've been super collaborative after that. And then and right there. It's when I understood I, I should probably go for a patent because no one had the same uh, idea. So I, I for, my, for the first time, I felt like, okay, I'm an inventor. I'm, I'm inventing something which could be uh, possibly a very big deal. Okay, so hold on one second here. So after you, you convince them to, to, to kick up the machines again, are, are you already... Have you already designed the the process for Coriva with that with that product? Sort of, because okay. we did try. Well, what I didn't tell you is that they did send us samples of the wrong material, and we did try with the wrong material, which means the wrong size, the wrong thickness, if you want. Right. And we failed, and we failed for about a year. And you know, so the process was there. The idea was there. Just needed to execute it properly. Yes, execution wasn't there. So, well, I, in fact, what's interesting is that I did uh, force him to restore that old equipment, but also to change the type of vulcanization process, which is something that a big company like that one didn't really want to do. They did it. You must be pretty persuasive. <laughs> Man, I, I did my best. Well, the fact that we were coming from you know the same area and the coincidence made everything, yeah, a little more, a little easier. Yeah, and and then so yeah, so it took about two years to come up with the with the right elastic yard, and um, and we spent those two years working on the patent as well. So the the the, the raw material characteristics, the physicals, the process. Of course, we we put that elastic yarn inside the cotton, so you don't see it. It is inside the cotton weft, um, and um, it, it gives you amazing performance, just like the synthetic ones. But it is bio-based and biodegradable. But again, the idea was not there, so you can make compostable jeans and dispose them like whatever, whatever you want. I mean, we all know that um, genes have to be durable first place. So the Coriva fabrics are not gonna biodegrade on you or dissolve when it rains. Yes, they are biodegradable and compostable, but the performance isn't there. And the idea is that at the very end of the life cycle of a pair of genes, you can dispose it, you can go compost with it, but because uh, everyone's like, okay, so now we got compostable stretch chains and uh, we, we just gonna trash them 
uh, and feel good about it because they're going to compost. I mean, it, it, it doesn't work like that. Of course, we want to enhance uh, durability in first place, and we just want to give a different solution to the very end of the life life cycle of a garment. So at that stage, let's say you're wearing a pair of jeans made with Coreva uh, and it's destroyed and you, you, you've been wearing it for years. At that stage, you can return it. We can recycle uh, as much as we can out of it and create new fibers. And the waste uh, can be addressed to agriculture as a biofertilizer and cool. maybe to grow the cotton again. So that is full circularity right there. So that's the principle of Coreva. So right now it's so cool to say it's biodegradable, so it's good. Doesn't really work that way. I mean, yeah, you can't just go throw jeans and 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 you know throw it into to 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 wherever into the forest and be like, oh, it's fine. Like they're gonna no, break exactly. down. There's got to be a that, process. That's the point. That is the point. But uh, it is something that I like to explain, even though I find it difficult to explain because somehow, and this is why this old sustainable wave makes everything very tricky because people just like to claim it's biodegradable. It yeah. is compostable and it, it's good. You know, it's just a marketing claim. Yeah, I hear you. Nope, it's way more than that. It's a, it's a process. It is a, it is full circularity. We're talking regenerative goods. We're talking, um, my opinion, we're talking the future of fashion, but yeah. it is something which, um, I'm, I'm super proud of. It, it took years, uh, to develop. Uh, finally it's out there. We're collaborating with many brands. Uh, we launched it with Stella McCartney and she did great with it. She was very supportive. Uh, now we're working with over 25 brands and we're also making our own tiny Candiani Coreva capsule. We are about to open a retail installation in Milano uh, in a couple of weeks um, where we're showcasing uh, the concept of Coreva because as I said, you have to see it, then you understand it, then you appreciate, you appreciate it and finally you love it. And if you really love it, Right there, we have a beautiful pair of jeans made with Coreva that you can buy. But um, I believe it, this is the beginning of uh, a different uh, or potentially different future for Candiani uh, in case we want to go brand one day. You know, we have to be very careful. We don't want to compete with our customers. Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. It's yeah. something very, very tricky. But at the same time, I am well aware that innovative like you know I'm, I'm aware that innovation should reach to the end consumer so we should look at the b2c model even though i like the idea that that c the b2c the business to consumer that c stands for citizen i like the business to citizen model and which is why candiani is going b2c then if candiani is going to become a proper brand real like i don't know i don't know yet it's too early but uh, we need to tackle a little bit more of that public interest. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, if, if there's one thing I can say is that your your heritage, your history, you, you've proven that you can adjust, you can pivot, you can innovate, and there's no doubt in my mind that you know your your experience is is going to translate well into the future, whatever that path decides to be. But listen, Alberto. This has actually been an incredible episode, very educational. Uh, I learned a lot. I think people listening to this are, are, are going to learn a lot. I want to thank you so much 
for for the time uh, and and for for the knowledge. And um, you know, I'm I'm looking forward to the B 2 C because uh, I'd love to get my hand my hands on a, a pair of your denim. Just come over, or uh, I'm just gonna send you one. Even <laughs> even even better. Listen, before before we go, um, why don't we why don't you just take a second to tell people how to connect with you or how to connect with Candiani? Um, you know, I'll give you a, a couple minutes to just um, you know let people know uh, where to find you and and uh, how to connect. Sure, um, I'm not a big social guy. Social media is not my cup of tea. Um, I don't even have an Instagram no more. But you, Ital- you Italians hate social media. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Not really. I think Italians love social media, actually. Yeah. They, I, yeah, they started to love social medias after the others, but now they do love social okay. medias. But, uh, of course, I mean, CandianiDenim.com. Uh, we are undergoing a big rebranding right now. So, I mean, even the website, everything looks a little bit like uh, not, not so special. But we are uh, 2021... Uh, we're redoing everything. So to get in touch with me, honestly, I mean, my email address is the best way to reach out to me directly. If, you, if you're curious, if you want to know more about Candiani, it is alberto at candianidenim.it. Uh, that is my my personal email. And uh, I'm literally happy to to respond emails from any type of people. I mean, I'm actually... <laughs> right now it's like when i get an email by somebody who's like oh tell me more about kariva and it's not like even related to the business i'm like good i i just it feels good it just feels good it feels different it feels real it feels personal but yes kandiani there's a kandiani uh denim store uh online as well and that would be the kandiani denim dot store and uh, we're selling the best collaborations with our top customers right there. And you will also find the Coriba capsule pretty soon. And that's it. I would say the Candiani Instagram, the Candiani Instagram, Candiani Denim Instagram is also a good way to, to get in touch with us. Amazing. Well, thanks for doing this, everyone. Uh, hit him up. He, obviously, you can tell by this podcast, he's an amazing human and a great entrepreneur. And um, and go visit the the compound because we gotta all go see this compound. Like you know, that's what we all gotta do. But Alberto, thank you so much. Be well, be safe, enjoy Florence because I know that's where you are right now. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. I will. Thank you very much, Andrew.